welcome to the APUSH files, the audio archive for honors history students at Balsam Spa High School. For today's file, I'll be sharing an essay posted by the Bill of Rights Institute on Jane Addams, Hull House, and immigration. For a direct link to the essay and source citations, please visit the show notes. It was not until after the United States Supreme Court's now infamous decision in Plessy v. Ferguson in 1896 upholding an 1890 railroad segregation statute in Louisiana and finding that separate accommodations for the races nevertheless could be equal, that segregation laws spread throughout the United States. After the decision, state legislatures enacted segregation statutes extended to schools, churches, housing, jobs, hotels, restaurants, hospitals, orphanages, prisons, virtually all forms of public transportation, as well as sports and recreation. It is commonly believed that racial segregation had been the status quo in the South since the time of slavery. But as W.E.B. Du Bois pointed out, a rigid segregation code could not exist under slavery because the races were in close proximity much of the time. Instead, it was a horrific invention of the later 19th century. Louisiana, and especially New Orleans, with its Spanish and French background and sizable population of free blacks of wealth and stature, had permitted the most free intermingling between the races of any state in the South. It is not surprising, therefore, that when a bill requiring segregation on railroad cars was introduced in the Louisiana State Legislature in 1890, there was vigorous opposition to it. However, the bill passed. The black community members who protested the legislation went on to form the Citizens Committee to test the constitutionality of the separate car law and collected money to bring a test case. Albion W. Torje, an upstate New York lawyer who was one of the founders of the Biracial Citizens Equal Rights League, supported this citizen group. Torje offered to direct the case without fee and was named lead counsel. James C. Walker, a white criminal attorney in New Orleans, was brought in on local counsel in the case. In seeking a test case for the law, Torget insisted on a plaintiff who was nearly white. Homer Plessy, the chosen plaintiff, was seven-eighths white and presented as a white man, though in Louisiana, he was considered legally black. On June 7, 1892, Plessy boarded a train, a passenger train, with a first-class ticket with a destination within Louisiana. He sat in a railroad car reserved for whites and refused to move to a car reserved for Negroes when asked to do so. Plessy was arrested and imprisoned in county jail. He was tried in the Criminal District Court of New Orleans in November of 1892 and convicted over the objections of his attorney, who argued that the Louisiana statute violated the federal constitution. Plessy's lawyers appealed to the Supreme Court of Louisiana, arguing that the statute violated both the 13th and 14th Amendments. Louisiana Supreme Court denied both claims, and Plessy's team then appealed to the Supreme Court, which agreed to hear the case. The opposing sides presented oral arguments starting April 13, 1896. The Supreme Court's decision came on May 18, 1896, nearly four years after Plessy's arrest. Justice Henry Billings Brown, writing for the court, upheld the validity of the Louisiana statute, with only Justice John Marshall Harlan dissenting. The issue facing the court in Plessy was whether a Louisiana statute providing for equal but separate railway accommodations for white and black passengers violated the 13th and 14th Amendments. The court treated each constitutional question separately. 
The majority opinion dismissed Plessy's claim that the Louisiana statute violated the 13th Amendment, holding that the statute did not impose a badge of slavery on the plaintiff. The court found that a statute which implies merely a legal distinction between white and colored races has no tendency to destroy the legal equality of the two races or reestablish a state of involuntary servitude. On the 14th Amendment question, the majority conceded that the object of the amendment was to enforce political equality of the races before the law. But the court then advanced two sweeping propositions. First, it said that the 14th Amendment could not have been intended to abolish distinctions based on color or to enforce social as distinguished from political equality or a co-mingling of the two races upon terms unsatisfactory to either. Second, the court argued that laws requiring segregation of the two races did not necessarily imply inferiority of either. Expanding on the latter point, Justice Brown found the underlying fallacy of the plaintiff's argument consisted in the assumption that the enforced separation of the two races stamps the colored race with a badge of inferiority. If this be so, it is not by reason of anything found in the act, but solely because the colored races choose to put that construction upon it. The court also found that the 14th Amendment granted civil and political equality. It did not secure social equality. The court held that the Louisiana law was a reasonable regulation and that it was within the discretion of the state legislature to preserve the public peace, good, and order. He went on. Gauged by this standard, we cannot say that a law which authorizes or even requires the separation of two races in public conveyances is unreasonable or more obnoxious to the 14th Amendment than acts of Congress requiring separate schools for colored children in the District of Columbia, the constitutionality which does not seem to have been questioned, or the corresponding acts of state legislatures. The court then turned to the question of due process. This was the reason Tourget had selected a nearly white plaintiff to test the case. His brief argued that the reputation of being white was a property of great pecuniary value, the master key that unlocks the golden door of opportunity. From this premise, Tourget argued that Louisiana statute authorizing the railroad officials to assign a person to a car set aside for a particular race deprived passengers of his property without due process of the law. The court responded to this argument by finding that we are unable to see how this state statute deprives Plessy of or in any way affects his right to such property. If he be a white man and assigned to a colored coach, he may not have his action for damages against the company for being deprived of his so-called property. Upon the other hand, if he be a colored man and be so assigned, he has been deprived of no property since he is not lawfully entitled to the reputation of being white. In his dissent, Justice Harlan pointed out the results of the court's decision. What can more certainly arouse race hate? What can more certainly create and perpetuate a feeling of distrust between the races than state enactments which in fact proceed on the ground that colored citizens are so inferior and degraded that they cannot be allowed to sit in public coaches occupied by white citizens? Harlan believed the Louisiana statute was inconsistent not only with that equality of rights which pertains to citizenship, national and state, but with the personal liberty enjoyed by everyone within the United States. Harlan also reiterated his belief that the 13th Amendment, 
not only struck down the institution of slavery as previously existed in the United States, but it prevents the imposition of any burdens or disabilities that constitute badges of slavery or servitude. It decreed universal civil freedom in this country. He went on to famously write, The white race deems itself to be the dominant race in this country. And so it is, in prestige, in achievements, in education, in wealth, and in power. So I doubt not it will continue to be for all time, if it remains true to its great heritage and holds fast to the principles of constitutional liberty. But in view of the Constitution, in the eye of the law, there is no country, no superior dominant ruling class of citizens. There is no caste here. Our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. In respect to civil rights, all citizens are equal before the law. In response to the majority's dismissal of the 14th Amendment argument, Harlan argued that the statute was clearly aimed at discriminating only against blacks. For Harlan, the black citizens in New Orleans who protested the Louisiana statute had no doubt about its intents and consequences. This is why the legislation was so fiercely protested in the first place. Harlan wrote, The destinies of the two races in this country are indissolubly linked together, and the interests of both require that the common government of all shall not permit the seeds of race hate to be planted under the sanction of law. State enactments regulating the enjoyment of civil rights upon the basis of race and cunningly devised to defeat legitimate results of the war under the pretense of recognizing equality of rights can have no other result than to render permanent peace impossible and keep alive a conflict of races, the continuance of which will do harm for all concerned. The racial aggressions Justice Harlan foresaw followed the court's decision in 1896. Segregation laws separated the races in trains, theaters, restrooms, water fountains, and most public spaces. The enactment of laws and ordinances requiring racial segregation continued through the 1920s and 30s and remained in effect until the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, specifically until the court's decision in Brown versus the Board of Education in 1954, which held that segregated schools were inherently unequal and violated the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 finally banned separate but equal facilities in all avenues of American society.